worship, we come into the presence of the true and the living God. And at this time, we now sit to hear Him speak to us from His Word. And so you can find our passage uh, in Genesis chapter 15, verses 1 through 21. It's also printed on the insert in your bulletin if you would like to follow along. Let's give our attention to God's holy and inerrant Word. After these things, the Word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer, three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half against, over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, Behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cabanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Grass withers and the flowers fade. Word of our God stands forever. Almighty God, our Creator and our Redeemer, we do thank you so much that you are the God who provides our daily bread. You've given us this financial provision. And so now we, out of gratitude, we ask that you would use this gift you've given us to glorify yourself that your word may go out to all nations, that others may come to faith, that you may sanctify your people. And Lord, now as we ourselves come before your word, we know that nothing of spiritual benefit will happen this morning unless you by your Holy Spirit are at work. And so we ask, that you would give us ears to hear, 
and that you would create and grow our faith. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. This older gentleman was talking to a young man who never wore a seatbelt. And he said, haven't you ever heard what they say about what happens in a wreck to people who don't wear their seatbelt? You know what all the experts say and all their statistics. And he said, I know, I know, you'll get thrown through the window. And, but he still never wore a seatbelt. And so about a year later, this older gentleman saw the young man again. And this time he was wearing a seatbelt, and he said, why the change? And the young man looked at him and said, well, I visited a friend in the hospital. And he had been in a wreck, uh, an accident, didn't have his seatbelt on, and so he was thrown through the windshield, 100 stitches, and so now I wear one. Oh, the, so the old man said, so now you believe what they say about wearing a seatbelt. You didn't used to believe that, did you? Well, I, I did believe it, he said, but I didn't believe it. I believed it, but it did not affect me. When I went and saw my friend in the hospital, I didn't get any new information that I didn't already know was true. But when I saw him there, it became more real to me. And it became new to me. You see, as Christians, we are those who at some point came to believe the gospel. It became real to us, and it affected our lives. But all too often, day to day, you and I find that we believe it, but we don't believe it, do we? What we find is that we know it's true, of course, but what Christ did becomes less real in our imagination. It's not new, and so it's not affecting our lives. And so as we're going to see, this is and always has been, all the way back to Abraham, the normal struggle of the Christian life. I believe, help my unbelief. And so God comes to you and me in this passage and he does just that. He helps our unbelief and he empowers us to new faith. And so we're going to see three things this morning, slightly different and what it says in your bulletin, the experience of faith, the weakness of faith, and the strengthening of faith. So first, the experience of faith. On the one hand, as Christians, we believe. We have had this supernatural experience of faith in God's promise. Over the previous three chapters, God has been preaching to Abraham. Okay, His name is... Abram, it's going to change to Abraham, so I'm going to call him Abraham. We all know him as Abraham. But God has been preaching to Abraham, I'm going to give you this blessing of a great nation, of a great kingdom, this wonderful promised land that will be filled with your children who shall number as the stars in heaven and as the sand on the seashore. It will be a universal kingdom, Hebrews 11 tells us, that this cosmic 
heavenly promised land that will be filled with the spiritual children of Abraham, of which the the earthly land of Canaan and the kingdom of Israel were, were only a dim illustration. In essence, God had been promising to Abraham the kingdom of God that we got kicked out of in Genesis 3, as we saw last week. Saying that through the seed of Abraham, through faith in the son of Abraham, the Messiah to come, you can have all of this great reward that God speaks of in verse 1 in our passage. You can have all this great blessing that I've been telling you about. It can be yours. And in verses 2 and 3, Abraham is finding it hard to believe this promise because he's thinking, I'm old and I have no son. In verses 4 and 5, God again comes and preaches to him, I'm going to give you the blessing, Abraham. And for one reason or another, all of a sudden, something clicked. And Abraham just knew God really is going to give me the blessing. He believed what he had been hearing and, and always knew to be true became real to him. The penny dropped and he gets it. Abraham, here in this passage, has an experience of faith. I once heard a pastor talking about uh, all the funerals that he had performed. And he noticed something about how we deal with death. Uh, he would be there in the hospital with the family and when the doctor would come in. And the doctor would say something like, this man has four months to live. He's going to die. And the pastor said, for most people, that's not when it sinks in. Uh, it doesn't sink in when the doctor comes in and sits down. Maybe three months into it, the wife comes into the pastor's office, just devastated, and says that she went in to the hospital, visited her husband, and he just looked bad, and suddenly it hit her. My husband's going to die. It, it sunk in. See, she had known intellectually, right? My husband's going to die. I, I know that. But now she felt it. She knew it. it, it she, with her whole being, she realized it. it became real. The penny dropped. It sunk in. Like Abraham, many of us have heard the promises of God preached to us over and over and over again. Like this lady who, who could have said the first, maybe the second month, of course I know He's going to die. So also we could say something like, of course I know that the Bible says I'm a sinner. Of course I know what Jesus did on the cross. Of course I know what it says about giving me the blessing of heaven. But it's one thing to know that's true. And it's another thing for it to sink in. Like Abraham, you can know all about God and His promises intellectually, but have you ever felt it? Has it ever, uh, with, with your whole being, have you ever realized it? 
you know, I've heard this preached to me over and again, but at a certain point, I just knew that God's promise was for me. That, that He is going to give me the blessing of the heavenly promised land. You always knew it, but you never saw it. And, and now it moves you. Now you feel it and you have this deep-rooted, confident assurance in it. it. I'm not saying that you have to remember the first moment that this ever happened. But have you ever had an experience of faith? Where Christ, the son of Abraham... And what He has done for you sinks in and becomes beautiful. If so, that's faith. You are believing. As Christians, we have had the experience of faith. But secondly, we also have the weakness of faith. Because on the one hand, we as Christians believe we have faith Right? But on the other hand, we don't believe. It's, it's amazing. Uh, Abraham in this passage in verse 6, he believes the promise. Right, God is going to give me the blessing. He's confident. Uh, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. Right? So he's sure, I know I'm going to possess what God has told me. These blessings. And then just two verses later, only two verses later in verse 8, he's already asking, but how can I know? that I will get it. How can I be assured? He's already not confident. Because this is the struggle of the Christian life. We simultaneously believe and we don't believe. We have faith, and then it's weak faith. It's feeble faith, and it's barely there. One minute, Jesus and all His blessings are beautiful to us. We taste it, we feel it, we see it, and it's real to us. And the next minute, it's like theoretically believing what will happen if you don't wear your seatbelt. But it's not really affecting your life. Or it's like that family member is going to die, but it hasn't sunk in. And we lose that, that sense that God is willing to give you the blessing. That if I screw up, if I mess up, is He going to reject me? Is He really going to accept me into heaven and give me that blessing? What if I'm not good enough? What if I can't keep it up? What if I fail? Is He disappointed in me? And this lack of faith evidences itself in our lives because James 2 says that it's faith that empowers us to live a Christian life that brings glory to God. But even as Christians, we don't have faith. We do, but we don't two verses later. And so, we don't have that life that flows out of faith one chapter later. Because, you remember what Abraham is doing in Genesis chapter 16? He's committing adultery. Abraham, the father of the faith, great father Abraham, is getting in bed with another woman who is not his wife. Because he's, he's not trusting God to keep the promise that he's going to give him a son. 
And he thinks, I've got to take things into my own hands. And it leads him to have an affair. This is the dynamic that plays itself out in our lives every day. David is a teenager who loves Jesus. He's the kind of guy that reads his Bible really not out of guilt, but just because he wants to know God more. I, I, I admire how he, he, he doesn't think he knows everything. You know, he, he is really humble, and, and he seeks out Christian wisdom from mature Christians when he has decisions to make and these things. He's really beyond his age in many ways. But at the same time, David is very often angry. Uh, when his parents ask him to, to help around the house, he gets mad at them. Because he doesn't have time. He's got to study. He's got to make good grades. He has all this pressure to do so well so that he can get accepted into the Air Force Academy. Because this is his dream. If I could just get accepted into this school, I would be happy. Uh, life would be meaningful, right? If, if I could just get in. And the reason he's so obsessed with this, praise God that he actually understands this, is that David doesn't believe God has accepted him. He does, but he doesn't, right? He, he forgets that he's already been accepted. He's already gotten in with God. It, he knows that, but it's not real to him at times. And so you find him living in this fear and desperately reaching out for this acceptance. And he's living in anger with his parents and disrespectful to his parents. This dynamic plays itself out in our lives like David's life. We live these kind of split lives where on the one hand, we love Jesus and I want to live for him. And in many ways we are. But on the other hand, because we're not only living out of belief, but out of unbelief, we find things like Abraham, like adultery, like anger, and a dozen other struggles. For example, when our faith is getting so weak that, that the forgiveness of our sins uh, becomes just this abstract concept, this kind of idea, just a doctrine, but that's not really real to us, we lose all of our motivation to praise God. If you've ever found your Worship of God growing cold. When was the last time that you found yourself just, just adoring God for who He is and for what He has done? Just, just stopping. Maybe it was in a moment of prayer. Just adoring Him. Worshiping Him. Truly. Like the, the prostitute who found out that Jesus was at the Pharisee's house. And so she went in and she knelt down and bowed at Jesus' feet. And she wept. And she kissed his feet. And she got her expensive ointment and she poured it on his feet. And Jesus said, 
look at this woman. The one who has been forgiven much, loves much. But you see, you and I will not love much. We will not praise much if we don't know we've been forgiven much. If the forgiveness, if God's promises of forgiveness have become this kind of theoretical belief that, that we're not seeing and tasting and feeling as real. And so how, how can that happen to us? How, how, how can we seek that? That's, that's the real question, right? Because our problem is not just that we don't have enough discipline, right? That God could have come to Abraham and said, you adulterer, if you ever do that again, I, I'm not going to give you the blessing. Or, you know, David, stop being so angry. Why don't you just praise Jesus more, adore Him more, try harder? That's not what God does in this passage. Because He knows that what Abraham needs, and what David needs, and what you and I need, is not just more effort and and willpower. It's what we need is faith. More faith. But where... Does faith come from? This brings us to our third and final point this morning. In this passage, we see the experience of faith and the weakness of faith, but finally, the strengthening of faith. God looks at Abraham with his small, faltering faith, and and he doesn't scold him, but rather he, he stoops down He condescends to him, and he accommodates to his weakness, doesn't he? Like like a tender father patiently trying to teach his son how to ride a bike when when he he just can't get it. He's getting frustrated, but but the father is, is just helping him along. God makes a way here that he is going to grow and nourish Abraham's faith. And so in verse 9, he says, bring me these animals. And Abraham cuts them in two and he lays them on the ground in this line. What's going on? What, what in the world is God doing here? Okay, it's, it's obviously some kind of a ritual. It's a covenant ritual. This is how people in the ancient Near East made covenants. Okay, a covenant uh, is like this contract, uh, a legal, binding, official agreement. Uh, a marriage is a covenant. Okay? It's, it's binding two people together officially with these legal consequences. A treaty between two nations is a covenant where you know, they, they make this treaty that it's this official agreement that if you do this, then we'll do this, and there'll be legal consequences if you don't. That's a covenant. And in the ancient Near East, when, when a small kingdom wanted the protection of, of a great mighty kingdom, then the king of the, the smaller nation, he would ask if he could enter into a covenant with them to be, uh, to be his servant and his vassal to the great king who would be what they called the lord of the covenant. And the great king would say something like, if you do this, your men serve in my military, you pay me taxes, etc. 
if you do that, then I will protect you. And your enemies will be my enemies and your friends will be my friends. But if you don't do that, if you don't keep all the words of the covenant, then not only will I not protect you, I will come after you and I will destroy you. And so they made the covenant like this. And then they would confirm the covenant by the servant performing this kind of a ritual. A covenant ritual. We have covenant rituals too. It's like a wedding ceremony. Okay, where we do things like trade rings and we say vows to confirm the covenant of marriage. Or in treaties between nations, they'll have these covenant these rituals where maybe they'll have a meal to confirm the treaty. But the way they did it in the ancient Near East is the servant would cut all these animals in two and walk between the pieces. And the servant of the covenant would say, if I do not keep all the words of this covenant, may what happened to these animals happen to me. May I be cut and, and broken in two. May the curse of the covenant fall on me. May death fall on me. And so in this way, the covenant was confirmed. Only the servant walked through the pieces, right? Because he's the one who's getting all the benefits if he obeys or all the punishment if he doesn't. That is what's happening in this passage, okay? You have God, the great king, the Lord. Okay, that's, that's why we call him Lord. It's a covenantal term. God is making a covenant with his vassal, Abraham. This great king does something amazing, something so countercultural that they can't find any covenants in the ancient Near East where this happened. Because in this covenant, the great king himself goes through the pieces. In verse 17, it says that a darkness came over the land, and this pot of smoke and torch of fire went through the pieces. This, this smoke and this fire are two words that Scripture uses to describe God's presence. It was used at Mount Sinai and as God led the people through the wilderness. The point of all this, the point is that God the great king goes to the pieces. The Lord of the covenant goes to the pieces, but the servant Abraham doesn't. So that instead of God telling Abraham to say, if I disobey you, God, shall I be cut off? You have God going through the pieces saying, Abraham, if you disobey me, may I be cut off. May I be cut and broken into. May the curse fall on me. And we now know that that is precisely what happened. Because the Gospels record that when Jesus was hanging on the cross, a darkness came over the land. And as Isaiah says, Jesus was cut off, right? Cut off from the land of the living so that Christ has rescued us from the curse of the law, Paul says, from the curse of the covenant, because Jesus was made a curse for us. Because of our covenant breaking and our unrighteousness, Jesus, the true son of Abraham, 
the Messiah, endured the curse of God's wrath. God looked at him as if he was the unrighteous covenant breaker, so that through faith in Christ, the seed of Abraham, you and I could be counted righteous. So that God could accept us as if we are righteous covenant keepers. So that we could know that the blessing of the promised land is secure for us. It's been a while since I read A Tale of Two Cities, but I've recently been reminded of it by a preacher who was telling the story, uh, which is that you have Sidney Carton and Charles Darnay, who both love the same woman. And she ends up marrying Charles. They have a child. And this is during the French Revolution. So Charles is arrested, taken away from his wife and child, into prison where he is sentenced to execution. And the night before his execution, Sidney sneaks into the prison and he says, all right, you've got a wife and a kid. I've figured out a way that I can die in your place. And Charles says, no, I I won't let you do that. And so what does Sidney do? He, He punches Charles and he knocks him out and he has him smuggled out of the prison as now Sidney waits for his execution. And there's this young woman who's also in this prison, also going to be executed. And she knows Charles. And so she walks up to Sidney and she starts talking to him. And she looks closely and she realizes that's not Charles. And her jaw drops. And she says, are you dying for him? And he says, yes, I am for him and for his wife and children. And she looks at Sidney and says, Stranger, I have been feeling like I am not going to be able to face my death. But if I can hold your hand, somebody so brave and so loving as you, I think I'll be okay. You see, if the sight of Sidney's willingness to endure execution for somebody else, so, so moved and so strengthened this woman to her core, then how much more will the sight of Christ's willingness to, to endure the curse of execution for you, so move and, and strengthen you to your core in your faith? And do you know where we find this? Besides hearing it right now, uh, each week in the preached word, we also get to see it each month in, in this covenant ritual, this covenant confirming ceremony of the Lord's Supper, of which I think we'll be partaking next week, where, where the great king comes to us, his vassals, right, his servants, whose, whose doubting hearts are wondering, How can I know that God accepts me, that God loves me, that He'll give me the blessing? And He answers our hearts 
by proclaiming to us visually, not only if you disobey, may I be cut off, but because you disobeyed, I was cut off. I was cut and broken in two. This is my body broken for you. Take, eat, drink. Right? And, and so that I, we see he took the curse for us. So we can know we have the blessing. And so that as we see and as we taste the bread and the wine, the Spirit makes the promise of the gospel become more real to us. And so that we, it becomes new to us. So that we, we see and we taste the gospel. It, and it nourishes and it grows our feeble faith. So that we are assured, I have God's favor. I know the glorious future that certainly awaits me. And when our faith is increased in this way, like Abraham's was, it will affect our lives more and more. Right? Because who does James 2 give as an example of how faith leads to good works? Abraham, this, this seemingly unbelieving, doubting Abraham was also at the very same time believing Abraham. And we see in James 2 that, that it, he ended up living a life of, of praise to God, of good works and of godliness that, that was strengthened by a faith nourished by the promise of God. May God also strengthen our faith that we might be those who know we've been forgiven much and so love much. Please pray with me. Dear Heavenly Father, You are the Lord. You are the great King. And we praise You that You are a, a covenant Lord like no other. That You make Yourself liable You have made Yourself liable for all of our covenant breaking. That You took the execution in our place. Would You so move us and strengthen us in our faith that that we may know that we will possess the blessings of the kingdom of God. And so our lives be bit by bit and more and more transformed by your grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.